0: This is episode 10 with author and multidimensional explorer Gordon Finn. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am your host, Kim McCall. If you want to find out more about life beyond the physical dimension, this is the place to be. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated multidimensional human being. But given the subject matters, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev and his song Reincarnation. Gordon Finn is a Scottish-Canadian author and long-time applied student of this spiritual life, mainly through the Western traditions. He joined me from his home in Canada and provides a lively narrative account of his understandings of our multidimensional existence. In this conversation, we talked about out-of-body travel, the nature of the afterlife, the power of our belief systems to determine our experiences after death, the ways we can help people who have died, and much more. Some highlights for me were Gordon's stories of being trained for out-of-body travel by the helpers, the relationship between morality and self-judgment and how they relate to our experience of life after death, the potential impact of disturbed extra-physical consciousnesses on our mental health, and the importance of staying grounded. I hope you will enjoy Gordon's storytelling as much as I did. The first few seconds of our dialogue somehow did not get recorded, so I apologise that the beginning seems like you're jumping in mid-conversation. Because that's one thing I I realised, Gordon, I know that you're a writer... And, you know, we're, Mm. we're both with O books and I mean, you're prolific, you're, you're a blog. Oh, I am indeed. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Your blog is is very, very rich source of information. I really would encourage anyone to go and interested in, 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 you know, afterlife and anything to do with consciousness, really to go and have a, have a snoop around your blog and just read this. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. um, but uh, I, I don't actually know much more about what you do with this. So you mentioned in your blog post something that you facilitate and and, and and run workshops and that kind of thing. But can you just um, yes. talk a bit about what it is you you do? And uh, if you want to, if you want to go back further and maybe even just explain a bit how you know how did all this start for you? In which stage of your life did you get into get interested in multidimensionality and and personal experience? Right, right.
1: Well, um. Essentially, I'm a sedentary scholarly intellectual. So if you had met me, if we had met, say, in the 90s, say 1995, I would have been able, in a a casual cafe conversation over lattes, tell you the whole nine yards about how psychics and uh, regressionists work, because I'd read all about it. I could tell you lots about what I'd read about the afterlife through various people's books, but at a certain point after that, I became a practitioner, maybe slightly earlier. And I think it happened because during the 90s, I got very interested in the crop circle phenomenon in Britain, and I went over, and I hung around crop circles, went to conferences, yada, yada, yada. And everything you've heard about crop circles is true. By being inside a crop circle, in a not necessarily devotional, but in a receptive way, it increases your personal vibration.
0: Maybe just briefly explain what is a crop circle for those people who don't know. If there's someone listening who doesn't know what a crop circle is, well,
1: they've been going on in England and the rest of Europe uh, and other places, but mainly that part of Europe, North America too. There are uh, shapes created in the, the cereal crops wheat, uh, corn, uh, oats, uh, you know, and uh, they are com- They started out simply as circles and circles with additions and then uh, quite complex shapes. And without going into a lot of detail, because there's been 30 years research in this, and I'm not a primary researcher, I followed the research, um, the crop circles are laid down in a fairly magical, non-human kind of way. You can fake it by using planks and bits of rope, but that crushes the stems. If if they're done properly, the stems are pristine and not crushed in any way. And the nodes of the stems, the nodes kind of like the knuckle on your finger, are um, expanded a little bit by microwave activity. So they say, and the information contained in the the more complex formations is uh can be analyzed mathematically geometrically in a number of ways so there's a great intelligence behind them and uh, it's also very much like landscape art um but in the 90s when it was getting going there was there's still conferences now but i went to several in glastonbury and um listen to what all sorts of people had to say about that sort of thing. and But also being inside of them uh, that raises one vi- one's vibration, just like meditation raises one's vibration or um, uh, any sort of devotional ritual activity. You focus on it, whether it's meditation or pray, anything, really, will raise your vibration. And uh, that's what happened to me. And at the end of five visits by about 19... Uh, 98, 99, I was feeling that I had changed quite ra- radically. And I would say to friends of mine at parties, I'd say, You know, I've got the funniest feeling I can do distance healing. And they would laugh and say, Well, why don't you try? So I did. And it sort of started to work. Mm. And I started to contribute to various websites concerned with either out of body travel or healing or an, any number of esoteric subjects. And, um, That fit into my, I had a background of being interested in spiritualism because my father died when I was 16 and I felt his presence around me fairly shortly after he died. This is 1968 when I was 16 and um, I didn't really understand it, but when I came to Canada just a a year or so later, I managed to find some spiritualist books and read on them and I realized what was happening. My, My deceased father was communicating with me and I accepted that and uh, being someone who loves to read about almost anything I uh, just kept reading and uh, I started into theosophy whatever theosophy I could find or occultism and um, more spiritualism and uh, that was in the early 70s was the time of uh, the Seth books appearing Uh, the uh, emanations from the Findhorn Garden in Scotland and those people would talk about communicating with devas in order to facilitate the growth of the garden and uh, human deva interaction. So that was very modern, very right then and now and uh, whereas some theosophy is 100, 100, 200 years old as some spiritualism is but it all sort of slowly came together for me and by uh, about just 1999, I decided to put all my afterlife contacts um, in a book. And I, I wrote that book, but it didn't come out until 2004, Eternal Life and How to Enjoy It. And it was published by Hampton Roads, who at the time were a very cutting edge, uh, new age publisher. And uh, their books were well, people would read your book just because it was on Hampton Roads. That was That was the level of trust that they had. That's no longer the case. But it was then, so my first book got quite spread around the world, and uh, I was on a local radio show where I, you know, started answering questions as a psychic, as an out of body traveler. I started giving talks locally, and I found that when I was giving talks, I was suddenly this (laughs) this very wise person. Somebody could ask me anything about the afterlife or reincarnation, and I could answer it without practically without thinking. And did I you thought, f- well, sometimes boy, find awesome. the
0: answers? Did you sometimes find the answers were kind of surprising, even to yourself?
1: Sometimes, yes, because I didn't. I saw my myself as somebody with afterlife knowledge, but not a lot of it. I, I as I spoke, I found out I had much more knowledge than I realized I had. You know, and um, I thought, well, that's intuition. I could be channeling a very high spirit guide, and you know, I wasn't quite sure, but. Uh, i just i just went with it you know i didn't question it i went with it um what else can i say as well well i uh, i'm Sorry. just
0: curious i'm curious how you because so you, you kind of describe how you went from basically being an intellectual uh student yes. student of multi dimensionality. Yes. um yes. and and was it really essentially those crop circle experiences that switched that to yes that was more experiential, experiential.
1: In the previous 15 or 20 years, Kim, I would have occasional lucid dreams where I would realize I was being, how shall I say, trained out of body. I had a lot of fairly classic out-of-body experiences that many people in the the occult literature will train. Like, for example, here's a classic. Your guides will have you in your astral body while you're asleep, fly through a forest fire of which, you know, there's plenty of them than in Australia right now. And the test is to see if you can remember that you're in your astral body and not get freaked out. You fly through a forest fire, and it's pretty intense stuff. But, of course, you're in your astral body. You're not physical. It doesn't affect you. But the test is to remember, because if you don't remember, you panic and you go back to your body.
0: Yeah.
1: So I knew that from my studies. But when I had the experience, I went, aha, they're testing me. They're seeing what another time uh, one of the guides um, set up what I would call a cartoonish little astral demon that would fight me the minute I get out of my body. And it would, it would put up a, a, quite a fight. And I would I'd struggle with it, like, almost cartoon-like. And then I would come back into my body going, <gasps> like, in a panic. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. I know what that is. That's another test. Right? So you have to then, uh, an hour later, you have to go out of your body and not be afraid, right? Yeah. Another test is you go through the wall of your apartment to the outside, and you get stuck in the middle of the wall because it's thick, and you think you're stuck. So then you, you either get stuck there, you pull yourself back, and then you have an idea, oh, I'll go out through the window. And then guess what? Going out through the window is quite easy. <laughs> but So uh, there was a lot of little astral tests like that over 15 or so years but they were spread out you know so i knew from my reading i was being trained for something but i didn't know what mm. so when the crop circle thing happened and of course the crop circles attracted people spiritual people or people that w- wished to follow the inner path from all over the world in the summers in england there's people all from everywhere there to experience it so that being with that group of people uh, whether you got friendly or not, it just raised your vibration because you're all focused on what is this great mystery, you know. So that that helped too, and I, I understood the principle of raising one's vibration, where it raises you beyond what you think and what you wonder about to what you actually know. You move into an intuitive thing where you know something without doubt. You see what I'm saying? Yep. Whereas intellectually, when you're studying stuff, you pull in the ideas and you turn them over in your mind. But there's always with intellect, there's always doubt.
0: It's not embodied. It's not an embodied kind of knowledge, then, isn't it?
1: Yeah, no, it's intuitional. I, I found out later. Theosophy will tell you you're in your Buddhic body where you just know without question. Um. But again, that's reading old yeah. theosophy. You know, yeah. Charles Leadbetter, various people like that, A.P. Synod, uh those those people. They were they were very helpful, very very helpful.
0: But did you, um, uh, in terms of raising your vibrations, did you also apply any kind of technique? Like, were you actively trying to get out of your body? Were you meditating? Were you doing any of those things before, or were all those those little teachings kind of happening spontaneously to you?
1: Well, around that time, I, I read Robert Monroe's first book many years before in my sort of intellectual phase. But then later, um, I discovered uh, Bruce Moen, who's very much just about, he went to the Monroe Institute and wrote four different books about his experiences there. And around that time, um, I, I discovered he had a website called the afterlifeknowledge.com website where people would share experiences. And so when you're sharing your first faltering out-of-body experiences it's great because other people react and you can think well I'm not I'm not quite that crazy you know because he's had that experience you know she's had that experience and um that was very helpful Bruce Moen's books were very very helpful and he was kind enough to write uh you know for the the back cover of my second book More Adventures in Eternity and we got, I never met him, but we, you know, communicated a lot, email and different things. So, um, and he was, by, by the point I, I discovered him, he's a very experienced out-of-body traveler. And uh, I learned a lot from his books. And um, so, but like I said, earlier stages, I would learn from the Seth books, a little bit from Castaneda. And yep. uh, I know you're into Walter Vieira. I studied three of his books. I learned from those. I forget exactly when I discovered those, certainly after my first couple of books. But um, being an an omnivorous reader, I would just grab anything, you know, anything that looked like was intelligent and focused on that that sort of world. And um, when you're reading other people's, Robert Moss, I should mention Robert Moss too. He's a lucid dreamer has done many books. He was quite influential on me too, and other names that you would recognize. But um, essentially around 1999, my l- sort of adult lifetime of occasional lucid dreams, suddenly it increased, and I got a lot of them in a very short time. And I thought, okay, I'm getting this, so I could. I have to write a book about it. And I was, as I was already been a writer for a number of years, the actual writing wasn't that hard. I didn't have to learn to write. I just, it all came out very quickly. Yeah. And, um, as I say, I went into giving talks locally. I wasn't doing stuff on the internet at that point. Um, and I'd I'd done a past life regression in the mid eighties. So I understood the principles behind that. I knew about a couple, two or three of my past lives. And, um, this is when we were still talking past lives, we hadn't got to the, uh, between life regression stuff mm-hmm. that was a little later um so it's, it's been very interesting following the, that investigative field as we discover more and more and more about that there's definitely um, been a real
0: evolution of of all of those fields right an evolution in the study of out-of-body experience it's so much more widely discussed these days past lives yes, as yes, well yes yes
1: Yeah, and in your in your own book you talk about that early period in your life where um, you were dabbling with recreational drugs. Yeah, And, and I was too. And there's no question. And everyone's very open about this now. There's no question that the LSD that I took in the early '70s was a revelation for me. It gives you a complete understanding of what the importance of perception, and that if something's a hallucination it tells you, okay, so why is that a hallucination and why is normal life not a hallucination, right? So it questions this whole notion of perception, which if you follow it for a number of years, examining yourself on your inner journey as an observer of your own consciousness, um, you understand that everything, everything that can happen, whether it's uh, the other worlds that are revealed on DMT, or the hallucinatory images and distortions of LSD you understand that it's your consciousness that's programming that which uh, when you're meditating you know you don't always get that it's uh, and of course the LSD was much earlier you know but you, you know you read all this Huxley's doors of perception yeah. and it puts it all into place for you you know so I would also uh, that's part of the whole inner journey but it was a very much an earlier part
0: you know yeah and i think it's uh, i mean like like uh, like aldous huxley writes about opening the doors of perception i think yes. those those drugs do have that effect on a lot of people um to quite uh-huh, profoundly uh-huh. alter our perception of reality um i've yes. actually just been i've just been struggling with the blog post for a while now because i'm 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 which is about the use of, of mushrooms psilocybin mushrooms yes. and i'm So humming, humming, and hawing about the positives and also the risk factors because I do know uh, quite a number of people who've had some very negative experiences and and yes,
1: yes. Well, that's that's the challenge when you're exploring the dark side. um, The uh, psychedelics will make it very vivid for you. You can explore the dark side in meditation or past life regression. You know, when you've done a few regressions and then you think subconsciously, or your guides think you're ready for one of your lives that was led on the dark side where you were psychotic where you were aggressive where you were ruthless where you were a killer when people experience that even straight as as a die that throws them that can can throw them off if they're not ready people don't want to see themselves as a warrior chopping off heads of villagers that, of, in a village that you've just invaded which happens now but it happened thousands of years ago too yeah and uh, So I would just say, I agree with you, psychedelics can be a huge challenge to your sense of stability and balance, but also past life regression is the same challenge. Um, And uh, having done a lot over the years with various clients, uh, I can remember, you know, people are not thrilled when they find out their current marriage partner, who they're about to divorce is somebody that they killed on the battlefield a hundred years ago. And you can sort of lighten the load a bit, as I've done many times, and maybe some of your other uh, interviewees have said this. You can lighten the load by saying to them, well, you know, it's an old joke amongst regressionists that the the sure way to wind up marrying somebody is to kill them in a previous (laughs) life, which as regressionists, we know is true, but you have to keep this little store of jokes going because... It can be rough for people. It's like, oh, my God, I killed him in a past life. There's a lot to integrate there. I've had a few people experience that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One woman, for example, remembered a life maybe 200, 300 years ago in Spain, found her uh, husband kind of boring, poisoned him, and uh, ran off with the two kids and her new boyfriend, who was much more exciting, and, of course, then got caught later and got hung. That was pretty shocking for her to experience that. This is somebody who is very well behaved and, you know, a good person in this life to see herself as that was, I mean, she survived it, but she she needed a little help. Mm. (laughs) So I would just say, uh, don't for any of listeners, don't put off doing your regressions because of what I've said, but be ready, you know, and probably you won't get that first time around. You'll get, A couple of lives that are easy to handle you know fairly um you know uh, dying in a fire or a plagues maybe not what you'll get first time around but you'll get it eventually
0: yeah yeah i mean when we when i spoke with the regressionist victoria duda she she said Uh that um often the the regression pathways described as the hard the hard way of growth the hard way of spiritual growth Uh because of exactly Uh those points so yeah yeah it's
1: tough, but I, people are often quite I find that when people come to me through a website or a book or something they're usually inwardly ready to do it they don't show up unless they're ready and when I say show up I mean I send an email or you know whatever yeah you
0: know? yeah yeah i was i was wondering whether we could just um you you could kind of outline your you know the result of your studies and your experiences uh-huh. Your, your perception, your understanding, um, because I, f- I find you write about it so beautifully about the afterlife, you know, the extra yes. physical dimensions, um, uh-huh. how it's constituted. I love your, your tagline um, The afterlife is for everybody. All you have to do to get right. there is die, I think. Well, um,
1: Kim, thank you. That's a very, revol- people, that's, that's more revolutionary than people realize because what of the other philosophies? We've got religious paths. But every religious path has rules for the followers. you got to behave like this. you got to behave like that. you got to do this. you got to do that. Else you don't quite get into heaven. And the atheists and the materialists go, ha, nonsense, it doesn't exist, right? So to say that is a very radical statement, although I make it sound funny. But there's millions of people around the wor- world firmly believe that all kinds of people can't get to the afterlife because they're not worthy. You know they don't play by the rules. They don't follow this. They don't. And in my little uh, a novel that I wrote called An American in Heaven. I have uh, um, a kind of a bad mouthing uh, rebel teenage girl dying. This is a novel, but I've met many in the afterlife like this. Uh, die in a car accident and then uh, go to a heavenly realm and have a great time. And she's not like a little saint, <laughs> you know. And when you've done enough out-of-body exploring, you realize that that's the case. The only thing that holds you back when you're there is your own self of self-judgment, out of which people do very a very good job. Um, but, for example, uh, people that commit ruthless crimes and even murders, if they don't judge themselves harshly, they don't necessarily go to a hell realm. They can go to a heaven world if they think they, they deserve it. It's not like people, there's nobody holding you back going, hey, you can't come here. Sorry. Um, the only places that have really kind of strict, the, um, the fundamentalist sects of either whatever religion you, they, the ones that feel that only a couple of hundred thousand people are going to get to heaven, well, they, they have their own little chunk of heaven um, and they try to keep people out. They don't they, they if they feel you don't belong, they don't want you. And um but generally uh if you're not one of those fundamentalist types that have strict ideas about who, who gets to go there and who doesn't, um it's very easy to move around. Very easy. And what is it um, that determines
0: how you move around? How do you how do you move around? A level of different-
1: knowledge. Level of knowledge. Either you know about it through and of course, we have the internet now. People study these things. I, I belong to at least five Facebook groups that where people contribute experiences. And um, uh, I find at this point, there's a, a, a certain percentage of people who are able to project their consciousness out of their body without doing any particular kind of ritual or meditation practice. They just do it. And as I have a whole series of videos that I call um, OBE Journal 2017, 2018, 2019, where I kind of taught this, because I found after a while, you you study the Monroe system, you listen to the Hemisync tapes, um, uh, I know you've studied Waldo Weyer's system, and uh, lots of other people have too. But I find that, and I think it's because the vibration on the planet is increasing for everybody as it has been for, I think, about the last hundred years. Um, so we're actually closer in vibration to the astral plane than we used to be. And I think at this point now, the more adventurous among us, and I've tried to encourage people to do this, is just sit back and meditate for a couple of minutes and project to where you want to go. Uh, visit your dead father, go to an astral paradise. You know, you can do it. And of course, people think, oh, no, there's no way I can do that. I have to do this and I have to study that and I have to go into this meditation retreat and all that. And I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying you don't have to do it. And I'm finding people are uh, talking on various Facebook groups, not because they saw my video, but just because they do, they find it happening. And, uh, you know, I try to encourage them and say, yeah, yeah, you're, you're doing fine. Don't worry about it. Um and that goes back to something I read in occult literature from about 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Theosophy, occultism of various kinds. Um, they, were pro- they were projecting that humans would stop. They were sort of saying that humans would stop projecting or channeling in the astral body and move up to the mental body. And I think Viara's got a, a name for that, does he not? The mental the, body? The men,
0: Yeah, the mental soma, yeah.
1: Right. Well, I, th- I'm, I imagine you would agree that travel in the mental soma is much more efficient than, uh, I forget what he calls the astral body. The,
0: the psychosoma, yeah.
1: Yeah, because the astral body, as you well know, has an attachment to emotions and angers and anxieties, and that can redirect you in all kinds of crazy ways when you're out there traveling. But if you go in the mental body, it's much lighter, more like a feather. It, goes, it, it can go anywhere where you want it to go without any impediments. And um, so I'm not surprised that this is happening because it was predicted in various... I don't know if you're familiar with the channelings of Alice Bailey. She channeled a couple of the no. Ascended Masters. There's a whole series of books done in the between the 1920s and the 1950s. She predicted that sort of thing through an ascended master that was uh, speaking through her. And um, uh, so anyway, I've I've drifted a bit. You asked me about the afterlife. Well, it's it's a thought. It's a, a huge thought form, and it's created by all sorts of dead people from thousands of years ago. The paradise realms are not that different from how they were a couple of thousand years ago, but the architecture in them is significantly different. When the, the Greeks and the Romans went to their kind of paradise, they created an architecture that was like what they had, you know. Yeah. And there's still some temples around that are like classic uh, Greek and Roman temples. But the more modern um, skyscraper mentality, shall I call it, that that only came about when we had people, you know, architects and who had died and stuff. And when you get architects that have died, after a lifetime of creating skyscrap- skyscrapers, well, guess what? They get to heaven and they want to create even more elaborate, clever, beautiful skyscrapers, and they do. And there's sky- all sorts of things that are almost um, architecturally impossible with the gravity of the physical plane. They can create there. Are you know buildings that bend like this? I don't know if you can see my hand.
0: Yeah, sort of a wave they, form of a hand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they do all kinds of clever stuff on the aspect, which. W- when people come back from their semi-lucid or lucid dreams, they go, man, I saw this amazing architecture when I'm there. And they think it's t- too crazy to be true, but it's not. It's there. Yeah. And um, so the, the, the paradise worlds are very magical by our standards here.
0: I don't know and if that helps any. You, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, I, I just want to go back to that guy who, who killed someone in this life. Oh, yes, yes, felt, yes. yes. Felt, felt no remorse about that. Uh, probably uh-huh. felt he did a good thing. Um and so uh-huh. you know, went to a kind of a paradise. Um or
1: I'm I'm not saying it, yeah.
0: Yeah. So so I, I I suppose I wanted to see if you agree that there are kind of levels to this. So that there are, you know, spaces that are very can be very pleasant where people live what we might call as uh the good life, you know, maybe uh huh sitting by the beach and having sunny days and drinking pina colada and that kind of thing. Sure. Sure. But they're not necessarily, um, the same thing as, uh, being connected in the, talking about the mental soma, you know, having, um, yes, having mental somatic connections with everybody around us and feeling ourselves as, as, uh, a part of a much vaster consciousness. Um, oh yes,
1: for sure. There's levels of paradise for sure. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, I
1: don't know, it's hard to say how many millions of people live in each level, but you, could, you can be sure that the religious paradises, the Christian, the Muslim, the Buddhist one, have millions of people in them who, are, who think that they have fulfilled their religious aspirations and are living in Christian heaven or Muslim heaven or Buddhist heaven. There's millions of them. And no, I'm not saying they're all living together, that the astral plane is vast. It's a huge place, bigger than Earth, and as we know, Earth could be even bigger if we, we could live in the places that are either too hot or too cold. Yeah. But, well, in the astral plane, that doesn't happen. You've got all kinds of landscapes, but there is no serious hot and cold. You can live anywhere. So when I say they're vast, that's what I'm sort of hinting at. Imagine all the millions of people that could live in Antarctica or the Sahara Desert if it wasn't, like, incredibly hot and dry or yeah.
0: cold. Yeah,
1: there's plenty of space.
0: I mean, Valdo so, um, has a has a sort of a hypothesis. He's always he's put out. Uh, uh-huh. There's about nine nine extra physical people for every physical person on this planet, in terms of the scale uh, of, of the population. Right. There.
1: Well, I certainly admire his uh, depth of penetration from the books that I've read. So I would say he probably knows what he's talking about. That would be my guess. I I wouldn't go to a number, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's right. Not at all. Mm. Um, It's like uh, Charles Ledbetter in one of his theosophical books from 100 years ago, um, and this will get into another thing here, the higher self, the monad, as the the theosophists call it, um, he says there's 60 million monads uh, around the planet, and each one of them is projecting all sorts of uh, energetic impulses onto the planet that become, you know, uh, fish, animals, humans, yada, yada, yada. Um, and that's just a figure he threw out, and I thought, well, you can't really verify it one way or the other, you
0: know. Yeah, yeah. he's um, counted them?
1: Uh, and that—that's an important point in uh, esoteric studies. Uh, um, the higher self and the Monad. I think people have to. I try to help people understand that. Because, well, maybe talk uh, a bit about
0: that then, because I'm not actually sure. It's not term, not really terms that I use so much. So, uh, right. so how how do you well, conceptualize them?
1: The Mon the Monad kind of like a group soul. It's a, a very high level being that uh, can project energetic beams from itself and any number that it wants, and they come down on earth. They come down through the various planes: the buddhic plane, the causal plane, the mental plane, the astral plane. And as they go down, they pick up the various bodies that we have, you know, energetically, because they don't have a body when they start. And they come down through the planes, and at a certain point, it's my uh, understanding and also experience that they they wait a little bit on the astral plane because they're waiting. then they've got all the bodies they need except the physical body, so they're waiting to sort of either choose a, a womb to come into, and that's where you hear all the. So the, so these the individuals
0: stories. are like so, so. You're saying they're group. It's a group consciousness. Is that what you're saying? A higher self is a
1: group consciousness. Yeah. So
0: there's multiple humans attached to to yes. multiple humans yes. are playing out the intelligence, as it were, yes. or the energy of yes. this monad. All right.
1: They are, yes. And um, in our in our way of understanding it, and this goes back to past life regression, we, we tend to look at regression as a linear learning process. You know, you've got one life in ancient Egypt, and you know, are a couple, and then. Ancient Rome, Greece, you know, yeah, and working your way up th- through what we understand as history, up till now, and uh, you can see the higher self that way. You can look as all these various people, human beings, uh, to, to simplify it a little bit, that come from different ch- centuries and learned different lessons in different lives, and then you sort of combine them all, and uh, the higher self sucks up all that information, and use it as like a data bank they know everything about life on earth because the higher self itself does not incarnate. It's, we're the little fingers on its hand. We come down and we incarnate and we learn through this school of hard knocks what it's all about. And then that, that information, we have individual consciousness. I'm not denying that, but later on after uh, our life, after your afterlife, then you ascend at some point either in consciousness or unconsciousness, uh, young souls tend to do it in a state of unconsciousness. They don't remember. And you return to the monad, the higher self, and then you're merging with it, brings your life experience to the higher self. And it sort of, to use a, a metaphor, a modern meta- metaphor, it comes into the its databanks and it stays there. But you're still an individual, but you're in this greater version of yourself. Greater than an angel, greater than an archangel. At least, in my opinion, it is. And um,
0: is this a theosophical model, or is this a where's this model? That's partly
1: theosophical. Yeah. Um, If people can understand theosophy as a body of knowledge and learning that was precipitated initially by Madame Blavatsky, who was um, responding to a meeting that she had with two of the ascended masters around 1850, 1860, I believe. And um, uh, so that the occult and esoteric teachings that had come down from Egypt and Greece that but had been suppressed by the Catholic Church for hundreds of years, although various groups like the Rosicrucians and the Masons and the Knights Templar held on to those teachings, but there were there were secret societies. The ascended Masters decided it was time for it to be broadcast into the world generally, and the Theosophical movement was picked as a way to disseminate those teachings right. and whereas the um, the more esoteric teachings about higher selves and you know chains of uh, lives, whereas the spiritualist movement was picked to give pe- regular ordinary non scholarly people an understanding of the afterlife that transcended the 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 worn out, ossified teachings of churches. They would find out in 1890, let's say, they'd talk to their deceased father or their deceased sister through a medium, and those people would say, Here I am, I'm living this kind of life, this is what I'm doing. And that common understanding between people, that transcended religious teachings or religious uh, prohibitions or whatever right yeah and uh, those those two movements were brought about to affect different levels of souls um you know uh, in society mm. and that both of them were worldwide movements they were all over the place
0: yeah no they were big yeah
1: yeah and I, as perhaps you know uh, spiritism was huge in brazil and still is yeah. And it's ironic to find out my the only book of mine that's been translated is my first one. It had a Brazilian translation. Uh, and well, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah.
0: And um the, the, there's a term you've used a couple of times now, ascended masters. I was just wondering if you yes. what what do you mean when you say that?
1: Well, in different traditions they have different names. Some of them are called ascended masters, sometimes they're called the White Lodge. And in the path of serial ceremonial magic, they're called um, the hidden chiefs. There's a whole, but um, what, who they are are essentially are beings that have completed their cycle of incarnation and don't need to incarnate anymore. And instead of say, going to a sort of a, a bodiless nirvana where they experience bliss forever, they stick around to be sort of like shepherds,
0: right? And they so give the the Bodhisattva of the Buddhist tradition
1: yeah th- that, the Bodhisattva that's a very good uh, image right there, very good metaphor. So um, there uh, and I mean before um, I think they would communicate to various um, as we say secret societies, the Masons, the Templars, the Rosicrucians, and uh, tr- try to keep uh, the the flame alive. Throughout the repression years, the hundreds of years of repression by the church. And then by the time the 1850s, 1860s came around, there was a freedom of intellectual movement where it could be spread more widely. And uh, they were part of that too. So essentially, they are very advanced beings, like archangels or whatever, but they are humans and they have completed their cycle of incarnations and they're in a position of. Shall I say selflessness and team spirit, where you know the, the, um, they give energetic assistance to all levels of and fields of um, human activity? There's some that focus on the arts, there's some that focus on the arts of gover- governance, there's uh, many, and they, they all have their own little area, and um, but they function as a team. And some of the the communications will say well we 're kind of like a board of directors in a big company we don't always agree, but we don't let our egos get in the way,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, and they don't they don't stop wars or start wars or do any of that sort of thing we 're free beings, as you know, and we're able to do what we want, right because we 're learning from our mistakes but they they do like on a higher level than spirit guides they they give energetic assistance and advice mm." They, they guide nations rather than uh, villages. Or you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. Work it's on, a big on picture. The big picture. Work. It's the, like I think the yeah.
0: boardroom, my, my other guest on the podcast, Linda, she talked about the boardroom, and that's kind of what you right. alluded to. They're sort right. of, at, a big, at a big level managing right. processes from a existential point of view.
1: Yeah. Right. And they're a bit, I mean, obviously, Jesus and Muhammad and Krishna, they're all part of that too. Um, they're all, you know, playing the game. And you can communicate, I would say to people, don't think that because you're a puny little human being, you can't communicate with them. You can. They have the ability, all of them, to be in many places at once. They don't limit themselves. If you think, well, Gord, how can uh, 20 people that are meditating in different parts of the world contact Maitreya, for example? Well, they can because Maitreya can split himself up into as many pieces as he wants. And each one of them is a holographic Representation of the essence of Buddha is the same. I've worked with them a little bit, not much, and that's the impression I get. There's no, there's no sweat about. Well, hang on a minute, Gordon. I got to talk to this guy in Australia. There's, you know, he's got another version of himself talking to the guy in Australia and the woman in Japan. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So um, I would say that to people that are listening. Don't hold yourself back. If you feel like, man, I've really talked to one of those ascended masters. My spirit guides are a, lo- a little ho hum do it and see what
0: happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's great. And also that's, that's how we get um, our own experiences, right? Is to, to reach out and to, um, in a sense, what you were saying before, you know, that we're often so bogged down by our own shame and guilt and those kind of things that influence how we manifest after this life. And I think, those are the yes. things the whole feeling small and thinking small is also what keeps us disconnected often from that kind of guidance because this whole idea yeah. of who am I to have that into Right, right. As we all we're all we're all absolutely that's exactly what they want, right? They want all of us to reach yeah, out. Yeah, the whole the, the
1: metaphor of being a co-creator yeah. comes into comes into yeah. view here.
0: Yeah. And
1: they're very keen for us to do that.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to change tack a bit uh and there's uh-huh. a, there is a a passage from one of your one of the blog posts that you yes sent me um where you essentially talk about as uh, paraphrasing here but the way i understand is you talk about coming back from having been out of the body feeling that that lightness and that wonder of multi-dimensionality and then, as you say, that that's quickly replaced by either days stumbling towards the bathroom or sudden and irreversible engagement with mechanical and electrical equipment or strangely awkward encounters with one's fellow citizens. Yes, yes. You kind of seem to, you encapsulate, for me anyway, the, the experience of suddenly finding oneself back in the body and all its limitations, And um, yes. uh, which can be quite a, quite a contrast. And at mm. the same time, at the same time, one of the things that's been really occupying me recently is, well, for a long time really, is how to navigate this successfully. You know, to be um, both engaged in my multidimensional exploration, and yes. at the yes. same time to embrace living in the body and living fully human. Here.
1: Yes, and I'm yes. just
0: curious how you found that in your life, how you juggle that, how how does your, you know, how do you stay true to yourself as a human being while exploring multidimensionality? Okay,
1: I I, I hear your question and I understand it, and it is indeed uh, a big challenge, no question. You have to well, the old phrase that people use uh, that you've heard many times is a. Uh, Keep one foot on the ground, at least one foot on the ground or two feet on the ground while your head's in the clouds. You know, that's a trick you have to learn. And um, I think it's an age old problem. And uh, you study, I study a little bit for amusement, the, the Zen Buddhist literature. And of course, it goes back to ancient uh, teachings, you know, 2000 years ago or whatever. And you'll see little references there. And um If you want to follow the bodhisattva path, as I think most people do once they kind of got their own little problems sorted out, you realize when you reach a certain stage of bliss that all you can really do is help others reach that state of bliss. Because once once you've hit that, even in a minor way, you go, well, that's it, I'm here, in terms of personal accomplishment. So then what you do, you try to find interesting subtle little ways to introduce other people to that but you you have to not be a bull in a china shop you know you have to uh assess where other people are whoever you meet workmates family members whatever um uh what stage of the journey they're at and what little bit of wisdom will help them other than giving them too much that will freak them out right and um I believe, and this is after many years of inner journeying and self-observation and past life regressions. This touches in in a good number of my quote-unquote past lives. I was a fairly enlightened being, but not in all of them. There's lots where I chose to remain a fairly ignorant, suffering peasant, whether man or woman. I had some not very pleasant past lives, but everyone does. And uh, there's two or three people. you know there's a Buddhist monk and there's a, a priest in ancient Egypt, and there's, believe it or not, there's a courtesan in Renaissance Venice, all of whom, through their own efforts reached a fairly high vibration. And um, so what I'm talking about now, I practiced in past lives. that's why i'm that's why I'm fairly good at it now without tooting my own horn too much. And um, so I can say with a fair bit of confidence that that's one thing that we all have to learn is how to gift those that come into your life path in any way with your understanding without overwhelming them or freaking them out or, you know, making them think, oh, he's just arrogant, I can't stand it, whatever, you know. You have to, there's ways to do it, but you have to figure out which level of the teaching you can give them. Now, often that results in um, talking um, uh, compassionately with people who have family members that are dying of cancer or have just passed with dementia, which is, as you know, is very common these days. And uh, I'm fairly good at that. I can talk about that sort of thing without getting upset myself Um, or give people little tips on meditation. You know, uh, people that start in meditative paths, and I'm you're sure you can remember your own beginnings in this, Kim. You're not that good at it when you start. There's other things attracting you to different, you know, going here, going there, doing this. When you're young, you're full of passions and excitements, right? And, um, but you can give people little tips about, well, try this, try that, you know? And it may be just a very small thing, but it might actually be what helps them. And um, what else can I say? Um, little tips about earthbound spirits. Now I know you've talked about this in your own book. I forget what Vieira calls them, but you know what I mean? Yeah. People that yeah, have died they, and haven't moved on.
0: People who haven't quite a, realized they're dead.
1: Yeah. There's yeah. a whole pile of that. Yeah. Now, you can get, I just gave somebody some advice on that the other day. I, I said to him, now listen, my friend and this guy I've known for quite a few years. I said, you, you, you have these periodic depressions, but when I look at you psychically, I can see how it is. I said, you're a kind, compassionate person by nature. And he is. And, um, I said, when you're around ill people, as he's sometimes, I said, you're picking up the vibrations of earthbound spirits that are hanging around the ill people. And I said, then you take it away. You don't realize they're there. And then a couple of days later, you find yourself depressed and that's because they're pulling energy from you because they want it. They're, they're, they're junkies for energy, you know? And, uh, so I get, I think I gave him a little bit of assistance there. With I've known him for years, and you know he would accept that, even though it sounds a little weird, you know. So there's a, all sorts of little things that you can do, and you you asked also about normalizing yourself after a blissful trip out of well, body. well, I
0: was. I uh, mean, you've 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 explained uh, some really useful ways of uh, uh-huh. I guess sh- sharing our knowledge with others. Yes. In yes. Or, you know at different levels, but I was also interested in. Um so so for example in my own experience I spent when I first got into all of this you know meditation and so on, it really uh-huh. I really went out there. I really just wanted to, I wanted those bliss experiences. Yes and yes. um I wanted to, in a way to get away from all the earthly stuff, you know. It was I found yes, it, I found yes. it very unpleasant and and just hard, you know. And so right. um over the years coming back into into, like you said, having having my feet solidly on the ground while connected to that yes. broader, more cosmic yes. energy. Um, uh-huh. That's kind of where I was wondering in your own journey whether you found ways to help yourself, you know, stay grounded. Um,
1: oh, I see. Right. I get what you're saying, Kim. Okay, yeah. lesson number one, eat high-protein meals. And I, I always say to people that are on the path, don't give up meat and fish. That's what keeps you grounded. Because yeah. because as we all know, it takes a fair bit of digestive energy to get that through your system. But there's there's a good reason for that. And that is it keeps you grounded. You eat uh, very light um, little salads and stuff all the time. It's good for you, like sort of physically on one level, but on another level, it makes you kind of float like a feather and you're off the ground a little bit and you've got your head in the clouds and you're a little sort of wingy dingy and um giggly and i've met i've seen all kinds of people like this over the years and um they need to get grounded and when i say to them yeah you gotta eat more meat they're they're horrified and i say no 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 what do you think cows are put on the earth for god put them there for a reason you know and there's a, an occult reason as well as a, a a normal kind of eat good meals reason same with fish they're there to help you on a certain level of your being and when I say meat and fish, I'm not talking about fast food crap. I'm talking about getting a fish from a fish market and cooking it. You see what I'm saying, Kim?
0: Yeah.
1: I don't want to. This is not about fast food. This is about real stuff. And it's it's just one thing that you can do. Another thing that you can do is a fair as much socializing as you can stand. In terms of, I know we all like to be out quietly on our own and meditate. I do too, but socializing is very important because you're you're moving in with people that aren't. As enlightened as you are, but they've got the same basic human concerns as you do, and um, you can also indulge in a lot of humor. And humor is very important for keeping you grounded, whether you're joking about politicians or your your weird uncle Ernie, who's got who's so eccentric you do, just want to laugh all the time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: it's very yeah. Keeping, keeping it keeping it gro- real, right? Keeping it human. Yeah. basically.
1: yeah. And now some people say dancing's very good. And as a young man listening to rock bands, I did lots of dancing. I'm I'm 67 now. I don't do much of that anymore. But I also feel that dancing is very good because it's a physical body expression, you know? Yeah. And it's good for other reasons, too. It's good for your health. Of course it is. But uh, those are several of the things that I do. Um, And there's more. I'm I'm, I'm missing out quite a few things. Um, But uh, some people say sports are very good various kinds of sports yeah i we yeah. all know getting people, into the people, getting into people, the body right getting they, staying, they staying connected walk, they, with they, the body yeah they love to run some people just love to run and they say oh it's very spiritual and you know and i don't i don't doubt it um but uh, those are there's many ways of of doing it and the, those are several
0: yeah yeah no, that's great and the other thing i'd like to ask you um, you've alluded to it, and you write about it quite a bit. Uh, yeah. is 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 assistance work? You know, going and yeah. and being out of yeah. the body, and and trying to get people from that are kind of stuck in certain dimensions to to go right. on. Right. So there's there's a few questions, I guess. One would be sure. just just to describe, you know, what that involves. But the other thing okay. I'm curious about is uh, how did you get into that? You know, is that just something you decided? I'm gonna I'm going to now go and See if I can help people, or right.
1: you know, right. how did that? How well, did that come about? On a conscious level, like a lot of things on the inner path, there um, you start doing it because you read about it somewhere. Like you know, I read books by psychics, so then I started doing a bit of channeling and spirit communication because there's the, the you get the idea from someone else's books, and inwardly you think, oh, I can do that, and then you you start to do it. Um, uh, the same with the uh, did I get that from Monroe or Bruce Mullen? I can't. I think probably Bruce Mowen, and uh, he talked in a great deal of detail about his trips to the Monroe Institute and the exercises that he did using the Hemisync tapes. And if you follow through, the, almost everything you need to know is in one of his books. He's very, very good, and um, I picked up a, a fair number of details about that through him. And I purchased a set of uh, tapes from the Monroe Institute guys, very interested, the hemi and each one take you to different focus levels.
0: Right. And there's, which is their word for dimensions, right? Focus levels. Yeah.
1: But I would yeah. say so. Yeah. So it, the, some of them will take you to the certain, the lower astral levels where there's a, or right, the physical plane one. And you start to see when you practice, uh, there are spirits all over the place, and some of them are pretty messed up and confused. So you, you, I developed, this was back 30 years ago or whatever, a fairly strong sense of wanting to help people. And almost everybody does when they find out about it. Everybody, as, as, um, as Ledbetter said in one of his old books, if you're kind and compassionate in the physical body, you can be sure that you're even more kind and compassionate when you're out of your body. Even if you're asleep and not really conscious, you know, you will function in that way. So you do the stuff that you learn from Monroe and Bruce Moen and you find yourself doing it. You find yourself talking to little children that have died in car accidents and won't go anywhere because their parents said, don't ever talk to strangers ever, ever, ever. So you're like the stranger guy and they're like, my mom says I can't talk to you. So you do a bit of talking and then you come back the next day or the day, you know, and you work on them a little bit and then eventually uh, they'll open up a little bit. And some other spirit that knows this little child, like a deceased grandmother or something, she'll come along behind you. And when the kid's looking at you, granny will kind of walk in up behind you and then the kid will see granny and go to granny. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, you're a bit of a facilitator and you have all kinds of different experiences um and your guides are working on this they're helping you do it and they're they're standing in the background but they'll take you various places uh to to work on different situations and there's usually an increasing level of difficulty uh people that have died in fires especially um commercial buildings that catch fire like at nightclubs where maybe 20 people die in the same half an hour they're absorbed with not just also having died but that sense of panic that people have in a fire where mm. they all rush to a door and the fire exits locked and that sort of a thing. So you learn to deal with that. You have to calm them down.
0: Because their that energy is still is there, there, right? That's still living yeah, in them. They
1: th- yeah, they still think they're dying in the fire. And actually, they're not. They're already dead. They're in a thought form of the building that's on fire, but they're not actually there. They just think that they're there. So you have to devise various ways of getting out of them. And you'll figure it out. Everyone figures it out. Um, the guides will give you little tips. They'll almost like they'll whisper in your ear. we'll try this. And the reason that the guides aren't doing it is the panic and anxiety and fear of the people that have just died brings them to a lower level than the guides can reach. The guides are up here, and the, the, the upset people are down here, and you're moving up out of your body when you're asleep or meditating, and you're, as a physical person, meditating closer in vibration to the ones, the panicked, upset, earthbound spirits, so you can it's, reach them more it's easily. A, it's a
0: kind of a frequency issue, isn't it? The, the it vibrating be, in different yes. frequencies. Yeah.
1: Yes, it seems to be. And um, at first you do this very carefully, according to what you've read in the books. You're very careful to follow the steps and do what you're told. And then eventually you, you start to find your wings. What does Bruce Moen say? Talk about throwing off the training wheels. Eventually, you don't need the hemisync tapes. You, your brain isn't trained to go that way. And um, and for example, in my training with my guides, at a certain point, I'd always say, "Okay, I'm ready. Take me somewhere, and I'll help whoever, whoever needs." Well, finally, they started saying to me, "Gord, can't you do this on your own?" And I'd go, "Well, no. I really think I need the help." And then they'd say, "Oh, all right. And they they'd play act that they were being frustrated and annoyed with me. And finally, when the, the 2003 war in Iraq was going on, I volunteered to, to go and help out people there. And when I asked a guide to help me, he said, no, you can do this on your own. And he disappeared. He wouldn't help me. So I, did, um, I just did a, a, an executed a command. I said, Iraq, now," And I learned that from a, you know William Bowman. Yes. I le- he's got a thing in one of his books where he says, clarity now." where you're seeing fuzziness and then you get clarity. Well, I adapted that to to a geographical location. I just said to myself, okay, Iraq now. And I went there and I was there because prior to that, I was like, oh my goodness, how do I find my way to Iraq? Right. And the guys are going, oh, listen to this nonsense, you know? So they kind of slapped me around a little bit and finally said, okay, do it on your own. We're not helping you anymore. But this is after months and months and months, right? They're not going to do that right away. So I went to Iraq, and the next thing you know, I'm retrieving or helping to retrieve various people that have died in the war and don't know what to do. And I'll give you one example that's in my books. I came across a bunch of women that had been, maybe 10, 15 of them, they had been forced, forced to be, how shall I say, companions to upper members of the Ba'ath Party elite. And, of course, their, their honor as Muslim women had been ruined, right? they're forced to be prostitutes, right? Escorts. And they said, uh, we can't go to heaven because we don't, we, you know, you know, and they see me and they wonder who I am. They think I'm an angel. I don't know what they think I am. And uh, um, one of them said, told me what they were doing. And a woman from the back shouted, but we were forced to do it. So I invented this little myth. I said to them, okay, well, you can't go to heaven, Muslim heaven, but I can take you a place that's halfway to heaven and you can go there. And of course, that's a reception area. That's in the Monroe term terminology, they call it a reception area. So I convinced them to go to a reception area and they went. And boy were they happy to get there, because they were like, oh my God, we're condemned to hell forever, you know, because in their in their world, that's just the worst thing that can happen to a woman. You know, just the worst. And um They're just innocent victims of a repressive regime. So anyway, I got them to go to this halfway heaven, but that's because I knew these places existed because I'd been doing retrievals for, oh, I don't know, a year, year and a half or something, you know, and obviously I wasn't given that early on. That would have been too much for me to handle a year before, but by then I was an old pro, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and you'd studied, you'd studied prolifically. So you had a, it sounds like you had a pretty good conceptual understanding Even yes, that. just
1: the sort of thing that any of us would read in the newspapers, you know what I mean? Just that ba- basic keeping informed about what's going on.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, nothing specialized.
0: Yeah.
1: So, um, I mean, I could go on and on about various yeah. retrieval work that I've done. You know, but you can. There's uh, a lot
0: of that going on, right? There's a lot of that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Every time there's an earthquake, there's all hundreds of souls there. There's these out of body teams that, that circle the planet all the time looking for disasters, and they're they're dead people that are doing this, you know they're, they're but they need people like us, but for the reason I told you, they can't reach some of the people that are so in such low vibration they can't see them so they they always want help always and earthquakes is one of the ones where where they need a lot of help, absolutely, yeah, and one of the experiences I had in Iran. When one of an earthquake hit one of the, their old cities and I think two or three thousand people died in a day um, you're going to meet retrievers that are from all over the place and the ones that come from the Muslim tradition are still using Muslim guidelines and I'll, I'll give you an example of how this works I would come across families that had been okay let's say a family of six people and the earthquake had Had taken four of them and left two on on earth, two maybe injured. And they were miserable. You talk to them, they were miserable. They'd missed the rest of the family. And I would say to them, Now listen, as far as I'm concerned, I can take you to spirit right now and you can stay there. You don't have to wake up in this body tomorrow morning. I would say it in the most plainest of terms, right? But they'd think about it. And I said, You could be with your family. They're all over there. Why don't you be with them? And, but they would invoke this more deeper prohibition against suicide they'd see it as suicide you see what i'm saying and when other um retrievers found out i was doing this they were not happy they would say hey you can't do that and i'd say oh yes i can (laughs) so you see even at that level there's still bits of i wouldn't say they would fight me but you know what i mean they would they would disapprove of what i was saying
0: so you were encouraging people who were just injured but who were kind of on the cusp Right, Ooh. to to go, I'd okay, say, just leave it, yeah. just leave your body, just move on.
1: Yeah, because a lot of people don't quite realize that when you fall asleep at night, if you stay away from your body, that body will die. But, but of course, in a normal life, you don't do that. You come back to the body automatically and you reanimate it. Yeah. And um, I just thought that morally and ethically, I was actually doing the right thing. But other people didn't think, you know, so there was disagreement. But of course, there's so much retrieving going on. There's very little time for argument.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's but like I, a, I do
1: recall that. I do recall that.
0: It's like a. It's like the human disaster area, right? There's lots of triage, and you just have to. Yes. Have yes, to, it's very similar. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um, is that enough on retrievals? Or would you like yeah. to talk more? No, I think yeah? that's.
0: I think that's good. Uh, I reckon the last thing um, I'd just like to touch on again. It's you, you. You alluded to it earlier, and it's in one of the the writings I looked at. Yeah, and that's that's your life as a priest in Egypt, and oh, yes. you talk about the fact in in your blog post that you didn't teach people direct access to God consciousness, um, even though you wanted to as a priest. But it was actually the social pressure, in a sense, people preferred the structure, the hierarchical structure, and they wanted yes. priests, priests intermediaries. Exactly. Uh, And I found that Um, very fascinating uh, repositioning from, I think, the common uh, sort of discourse about, uh, you know, priests maintaining their authority.
1: Right, Um, right. Well, that's what they were doing. They didn't. If I was to to go out there and teach direct access to the God consciousness, they would be, be, if it was successful, they'd be left without a position in society and a job.
0: So, so, so it that. was the other oh, it was the other priests who were not happy about it, not so much as the people. Yeah,
1: there was various um, uh, competing uh, associations of priests. Now, um, yeah. the ones that, that argued for maintenance of the structure, I'm sure a lot of them thought I was some crazy radical that needed to be repressed. Like, what do you mean teach them the direct access to God consciousness? They can't handle that. You know, and I'd be saying, or I'd feel, no, that they can't handle it. But... When I look back on it now, as maybe in the book or the blog post, I can't remember, I sort of feel like as, uh, as uh, a semi-enlightened being, shall we say, I was being a little impatient with the mass consciousness on the planet at the time. I wanted it to be a little farther up than it is kind of where it is now, really. You could say that to people now and they'd be, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, there's lots of people ready Quite ready to do without the bureaucratic structure of priests and bishops and the whole nine yards, right? Yeah. But back then, they weren't. They were, you know, but I, so it was me kind of being impatient, I think. I had to learn that lesson. Yeah, you know?
0: sure. Yeah.
1: And um, after that Egyptian life, or a couple, it was more than one, it was a couple of them, I got dis- disenchanted and I came to uh, pre Christian Britain and became a Druid. And Druids were much, had a much more free hand, they were individual teachers. They taught the ancient wisdom but on a on an individual level there was no bureaucratic
0: structure above them no, it's more like a shamanic kind yeah. of culture
1: yeah so I really enjoyed that yeah <laughs> no nobody to argue with it was great <laughs> fun I really enjoyed it
0: and and what is this when you talk about the God consciousness um yeah you know what what is it how what would you what do you consider that and how does one induce that
1: well it's um in a, in a, a kind of acute sort of way, you can say it's just another place to be that you can project yourself to, in meditation or in any kind of a consciousness projection exercise that you've learned in whatever tradition, whatever tradition you're working from. It doesn't matter which one it is; they all teach the same thing, really. Um, you have, to, as you know, Kim, you have to shed various belief systems in order to project the first one is can i do it well of course you can do it but you have to shed the belief system that says you can't do it and then the various things uh when you go through um, the lower astrals are not very pleasant as you know filled with angry resentful narrow-minded depressed people you have to shoot past that you have to shoot past the uh the purgatory realms the paradise realms and a lot of people have trouble going past the paradise realms because It's like being um, at a holiday resort, say, in Acapulco or Jamaica somewhere. It's very pleasurable. Let's put it that way without getting into details, but I think you know what I mean. It's pleasurable in all the human levels. So so, so, some people have a trouble projecting past that because it it looks pretty nice, right? Yeah. It's just another place to get stuck at. So after that, you hit the religious heavens, and if you've got some religion in you, it's kind of like, Oh, this is just like what Jesus said it would be, or Muhammad, or Krishna, or whatever, right? So there's a, a strong sense of fulfillment there, but you have to project past that too. You just you have to shed all of that stuff. Then the next level is uh, you start to go into what the uh, Theosophists call the Arupa levels, the formless energy planes. There's no there's no uh, there's no landscapes. There's no communities. that are there are lots of spirits there, but they're kind of transparent. You can hardly see them. And um you go you keep going past that until you get to um a kind of a, a it's another formless level where there is actually nothing at all except light. there's nothing and um you, at first, you think, well, what is this? well it's the god plane. The god consciousness is there, uh, and I would define the god consciousness as that eternally creative consciousness that is creating all the universes in real time although of course there's no time there but in real time in the sense of constantly without cease you know and just um when you read when you uh, scientists astronomers will tell you there's there's planets being created out on the edge of the universe constantly there's there's no stopping that's that's one one scientific metaphor that you can use to understand it yeah um so that's the consciousness and when you're at that level of consciousness you understand that you're omnipresent and you're omniscient but to exercise that omniscience you know that hey i'm pretty cool and i know everything that to exercise it brings you down a level because you're already responding to ambition and ego right so you have to experience that omnipresence omniscience without wanting to do anything with it because a, a higher level you realize there's nothing that you can do with that omniscience or that omnipresence that hasn't been done before. Planets have been created. Civilizations have been created. They've risen and fallen and, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Uh, it's all been done. Now, that's not to say it shouldn't continue to be done, but there's no need for you as a meditator in the God consciousness to do it. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So it's an incredibly bisous experience.
0: It just is, right? It just is unfolding. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you just have to, guess, here it is and we're here and there's really nothing to do, nothing yeah. at all. Because all that, that sense of, oh, let's make the world a better place or let's make a better planet or yada, 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 all that stuff is a projection of ambition and ego. You don't need to make a better world. the The world that exists like the one we're on right now, it's a perfect playground for every type of soul to realize its ambitions, you know? It's as far as I'm concerned. It's a perfect playground. Uh, obviously, obviously, the climate change thing is a huge challenge. I'm not denying that. You know, uh, I've got friends in Sydney. I know what they're they're having to put up with. I know the fires are right at the edge of Sydney right now. Unless yep. it's changed in the last day, I realize that. Um, but um, I, I go back to my original metaphor. It's the perfect playground for every type of soul to have the experience it needs in order to move on or, you know, learn or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know? So uh, to relate that to the God consciousness, do you see what I'm getting at without attacking people that are social activists? I don't wish to do that. You know, not at all.
0: Well, that that is also that is a, that is a life ex- that is a life expression as well. Right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Obviously, all the all this all the the struggling and the striving we do here is an expression of consciousness in this in this dimension.
1: Yes, it is. It is. But when when people ask about the God consciousness, as you did, that's how I would explain it. When yeah. you get there, when you've shed all these other desires and ambitions and needs and attractions and you're there as a as a little point of consciousness yeah you realize when you're there there's nothing to do you can be blissful you know but that's it and then uh, after a while you come back
0: and i know? guess that, that that in a way that almost gets me back to that other question before about you know it being grounded so yes. so how do we give expression to that uh, to ah. that consciousness here as a physical mm-hmm. human being or is it just an experience that, in a way, almost has no relevance to us other than, you know, filling us with that periodic bliss? Or is it something that we somehow channel here and, and actually manifest in some way in our own expression as our unique right. individual?
1: Well, I do, try to, I do try to channel a little bit um, just as an exercise to you not know, benefit me, but to benefit humanity. It's that old meditation, I'm sure you've learned it somewhere along the line, where you pull the, how shall I say, the divine white light from the highest level of consciousness that is possible, and bring it down through your crown chakra, and then put it out through your heart chakra, and it's for the benefit of all sentient beings. It's not for you, it's for them. Just It's like, it's like being kind in a very cosmic kind of way, you know what I mean? Yeah. It You do it because you know it's going to benefit everybody just a little bit. It's going to make their day just a little better, just a little touch here and there, and but it's for everybody. It's it, not just for your pals or your society yeah. or your church. It's for everybody. It
0: kind of goes into the and, planetary grid that connects us all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, thank you. The planetary grid. Exactly. So you can always do that with the God consciousness, but that's about really, that's about all you can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's not a practical mechanism for improving things it's It's a gift of love and light for all sentient beings. I don't know if that helps any.
0: yeah no, that's great. and I think that's a good place for us to to stop this this chat um, okay if cool. the, all the information you know your your website and so on will be um, attached to the the notes for this recording oh, right. Right. but if you want to let people you want to let people know um, you know if they want to get in touch with you. Oh uh, sure,
1: absolutely. Do you want me to give my email right now?
0: Yeah, email website that you'd like people to have a look at, your blog, for okay. example.
1: Yep. Okay. I'll uh, uh my moon uh webs uh, sorry, start again. Um the email is wordofgord at yahoo.ca. You know, word of Gord, all lowercase, all one word. Word of gourd. Obviously it's a pun on the word of god, but yeah. wordofgord.yahoo.ca. Yeah. That's the email. Um I think my um, videos would be particularly useful. There's, I've got a lot of videos on YouTube. There's like ridiculous numbers, but there's various series. There's one series called Average Folks in the Afterlife where I read from other often ver- fairly obscure books on the afterlife, either through channeling or out-of-body experience. And as you probably know, there's quite a lot of them. And in the modern era, lots of them have been reprinted or they are available online. But I sit and read them over a series of uh, YouTube uh, videos and discuss the points that they bring up. But that's all other writers. That's not me, but it's, it's still pretty interesting. Then I have the series called OBE Journal, and that's OBE Journal 2017 or OBE Journal 2018 or OBE Journal 2019. And that's all about my own out-of-body out of projections and the people that I meet, some famous people, you know, some famous artists. And. Uh, Different types of people that I meet and regular people that you can just meet when they're out of body, you know, and I obviously I give instruction too. I I try to show people how to do it. So there's a lot of that. There's plenty to watch enough to keep you busy for a year. No problem. Lots of them. (laughs) And I would say to people, if if you touch on one that you don't like very much, just go to the next one. You know, they're not they're not graded in any way. Just go to the next one and see if you like that one. Um, the blog is uh, another word of gourd at WordPress, you know, a word, another word of gourd, all one word, WordPress, you Google that, you'll find them. There's lots of those. Uh, some of my blogs are in uh, a bunch of books. You'll see that on my, and all the books are listed on Amazon. They're all there. Yeah. And, um, and any Amazon anywhere, really, even, uh, even the Chinese one, although it's a little hard to read. <laughs> but one of my books are listed there um most of my sales are in north america in europe and australia by the way look at a few uh, sell there um so that's about it the blog the videos the books
0: yeah yeah no that's, that's great. about it i would say okay well thanks so much gordon for coming on and uh oh, you're welcome kim yeah, it's been really nice to connect Hi. with you in person after yes. being sort of well, I, Facebook uh, right, acquaintances right. for well, quite a few years.
1: When I, when I first read your book two or three years ago, I reread it, you know, recently. But when I first read it, I thought, oh, I'm going to wind up talking to this guy. I can feel it, you know, because a lot of your experiences, you know, you go right back to your, how shall I say, confused youth and drug intake and stuff. Well, I, believe me, I smoked plenty of dope when I was young too. But I also listened to inspirational music, you know, you know, you, you listen to the Beatles, it's inspiring, you know. You know there's a better world out there because they're singing about it, you know, and other things, you know. Um, and that uh, lady that you met that said she was a walk-in, that was pretty fascinating, Yeah. you know. I'd never really met anyone like that, but I'd read other people had, had encounters with people like that, you know. But uh, like I say, there was so many points of contact with your book that I thought, even three years ago, I thought I'm gonna. I didn't know what form it would take, but I knew I was going to get to know you better. You know, I could just tell.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad we. This is one form, and you know, we're in touch now. So, sure, I think uh, I, I do feel like uh, people who are into uh, and, and the internet. That's one of the the great things about the internet is really bringing this community together. I feel there is a, a shift away, you know, from the from the organised religion, for example, and, and organisations even around this work to lots uh-huh. of us lots of us as individuals um doing you know doing this work our way and yet staying connected uh, across the planet
1: yes yeah. yes the, it's the internet's marvelous for that sort of thing absolutely marvelous it's uh it's the it's the way of the future despite all the surveillance society stuff i think the internet will survive that quite well yeah you know yeah. I'm
0: sure it will yeah. All right well I'm gonna end now Gordon and um, okay thanks again. nice thanks talking again. to you
1: Kim. yep
0: bye bye bye. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it The tune seeing us out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.